The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Now we're looking at uh, verses 12 through uh, 21, but because we've been away so long and because it's so in, uh, in, intricately tied to verses 1 through 11, I'm going to actually read verses 1 through 11. Then we're going to expound verses 12 through 21. This is God's word, inerrant and fallible, that is read in your hearing. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Romans 5, 1, we, we what? One, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Two, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Three, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Four, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And why? Five, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. How? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Much more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. And by his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. On Sunday nights, I'm doing a series called Foundations, God's Blueprint from Genesis, Foundations of the Christian Life from the book of Genesis. We've looked at sanctity of life, sanctity of God, sanctity of creation, uh, sanctity of man, sanct- um, uh, the origin of man's fall. All of that we've taken a look at. And what we're in now is the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of family, and a series for the summer on biblical parenting. The sanctity of family manifested with biblical parenting. I do please encourage you to be a part of that series on Sunday night when we get back into it after the next couple of weeks. But as I've been preparing for that series, I've thought back to my experiences not only as a parent, but my experiences in being parented. And and I look back on it, and what are some key moments and key things? Well, uh, there's one aspect of parenting we call the rites of passage. 
um, you, you know, when the, when daddy gives you the keys to the car, that's a right to, pa- that's a right of passage. Huh? Remember when my dad gave me the keys to that 57 Ford? I also remember my dad took them back a couple of times. So I had to, I had to go in and out of that rite of passage on more than one occasion. But, uh, but there was this, you know, this moment. Well, there was another one then that I was thinking about in my family that uh, I just, uh, just immediately came to my mind. As that dinner table and di- being together as a family at dinner uh, was a big deal uh, growing up for us in, in many ways and many things around it. But one of the things was that we didn't, when the meal was over, nobody, we, you didn't leave the table until you were dismissed. And the adults didn't leave for a while. The adults would hang around, sit around the table, push back, uh, maybe unbutton your belt just a little bit, and uh, push back and start talking. And then we, the children, were dismissed. But about age 13 is the time that dad would say, okay, um, you can stay. And to stay and listen, I'll never forget that moment. Dad told me, okay, you can stay at the table. And as I looked out of the corner of my eye with my three sisters having to get up and leave the table, while I got to stay at the table. And I could listen to a grandmother and my mother talk and my dad and my mom. And I listened to my grandparents. I listened to my dad and my granddaddy and the stories and all the things that were happening. Well, you would start, I so, I so all wished as I would sit and listen to that, I had taken not just mental notes, but actual notes. But I can still remember so many maxims of life I would hear. Now, one of them, um, I bet you've heard it. Um, it. When the adults would sit around and talk, there would be this statement. Well, there's only two things you can be assured of in life. There's two things you can be assured of in life. Were y'all at the same table I was at? (laughs) Death and taxes. That's what I heard. Well, I want you to pull up to the table. The Lord's table of his word. There's more than a couple of things that you can be assured of. But there's two that I think are absolutely crucial, essential. That Paul is trying to get in front of us as clearly as he can. Repeatedly he's doing it. There's two things that are absolutely crucial. Two essential things. Now there's, there, there's multiple things. Multiple truths revealed. Propositional truths from God's word. But there's two in particular that I think are are, um, I, it's hard for me to tell you. In fact, I'm going to make a pastoral request. I'm going to make a personal request. Gird up the loins of your mind just a little bit. This can't be one of those inspirational, aspirational sermons where, you know, the pastor makes a statement and then gives two illustrations and, oh, my heart was moved. Now, this is, we're going, we're going to have to go down a little bit here, but there's a reason why. And it's following what Paul is doing for us in this fifth chapter. So please hang with me. In fact, I'm going to challenge you to do, I know you can think and do think, but I'm going to challenge you to think with me in these few minutes that we have together around this. 
uh, two very essential. But, but, you know, before I get to those two essential questions, there's something else I want you to see. The Apostle Paul in this book of Romans is giving us an exposition of the gospel. He initiated it in Romans 1.16 when he said, I am eager to preach the gospel. I am eager to preach the gospel and I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith, that the gospel is the power of God and the righteousness of God. And now for five chapters, he's trying to explain to us why that's good news. And how great the good news is. The power of God. And the righteousness of God. And we get to chapter 5. And which is just jam packed into it. But it's jam packed. And this is a tough text. It's not an easy text. But once it's understood. It becomes a foundational text. For your Christian life. The Apostle Paul, as he's done this exposition of the gospel, there's two things I've noted about him. Number one is the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he, he's got two patterns he's working with. One is what I call the teacher trajectory pattern pattern. In other words, he is on a linear thought. He tells you that the gospel reveals the love of God, the grace of God, the power of God, the, the, for the righteousness of God is revealed. The grace of God has been revealed. And then he begins to start t- trying to tell us how important that is by building step by step. And in chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, he says, let me tell you why this is important. Because every human pagan is lost and undone and apart from God's grace is given over to their sins. Then in chapter 2, he says the religious pagan is lost. And then in chapter 3, he says the Jew is lost. The pagan Gentile, the religious Gentile, the Jew is lost. And he sums it up when he gets to Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, what is our only hope in life and death? Jesus. And he starts to unfold that glorious solution that God has to our, to our situation in chapters 4 And now we're in the meat of it. And I say the word meat. This isn't milk. This is meat. And we're in the meat of it in chapter 5. But it's so important to grasp it. But he not only does something. Can I give you one more thing? I'm going to, I'll get back to this later because this is so important also. He not only is a trajectory teacher, he has a very specific pedagogy. Now, pastor, why use that word pedagogy? Because I couldn't come up with a better one. Let me give it to you. In the Bible, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, a teacher was called a rabbi. In the New Testament, he's called, a teacher is a pedagogue. It means someone assigned to take someone from immaturity to maturity. A teacher was a pedagogue. And their style of teaching was their pedagogy. And Paul has a pedagogy that's unmistakable. 
He presses you. He takes you to level, to level, to level. He keeps taking you higher and higher and higher. Yet, he does it. When he does it, he never forsakes the foundation. The only way I can tell you is a little bit like um, boot camp in the Marine Corps or Army or Navy or whatever. It's kind of like, but here's what happens. The, the guy that's walking alongside of you and maturing you as a combat soldier keeps taking you every day and every week from level to level. But when he does, he always goes back and repeats the rudiments. In other words, he'll take you to a level and then go back to the basic. Then he'll take you to the next level, but he'll go back to the basic. He'll take you to the next level, but he'll go back to the basic and then the one that he built on and then the one that he built on and then you'll go to another. My, um, my coach hips, uh, in every August two a days at football at East Mecklenburg, what he would do, he'd give us our, our weightlifting assignments, but every, every week you had to go back to where you started and then you'd go to where you left off and add to that week but you always went back why because what they're doing is putting muscle memory into you when crisis comes when adversity comes muscle memory this is what i do this is what i do this is the next thing to do and so they're building that muscle memory in from the basics up Paul's doing the same thing spiritually. He's putting soul memory in you because you're going to be persecuted. You're in a broken world. You're going to be challenged. There is adversity. And he wants you to have a certain spiritual memory that you automatically go back to. This I know. You see it in the Apostle Paul, don't you? Second Timothy chapter 1. He's about to die. And what does he say? I suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed for I know. This is what I know. This is the foundation of my soul. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. There's some foundations here. And I think there's two essential questions that, need to, that he answers that we need to understand how he answers them and why he answers them. Let me give them to you. Here's the first one. The first question that's being answered in chapter 5 is this. Is it true that every human being, without exception, is a sinner and therefore justly under God's righteous judgment? Is it true? Is it true? Is it an assured fact That every human being, no exceptions, Africa, Asia, Australia, Europe, North America, South America, wherever you go, every human being without exception is born a sinner and sins and dies apart from divine intervention. Now, Harry, why would you say apart from divine intervention? Because I know of two cases that are an exception because, not because they were exceptional, but because God intervened. And that's Elijah and Enoch. Enoch walked with God and he was no more. And Elijah was taken up. And there were specific reasons that we won't go into as to why he did both of those. Otherwise, it's a 100% mortality rate. All die. It's a 100% reality. 
all sin. All sin, all die, all are under God's judgment. Is that true? Secondly, is it true that without exception, is it true that all of God's elect, without exception, are forgiven of all of their sins and are justified and declared perfectly righteous before God? Is that true? Well, the reality is the answer to both of those is yes. It's already been answered for us. Is it true that every single person that has lived, has lived and sinned and died without exception apart from divine intervention? Answer, yes. And Paul has painstakingly said it in a trajectory and he has gone back and restated it time and time again. All have sinned. There you are. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. There is none who seek for God. All have gone astray. They have turned aside. And the wages of that sin is death. He has painstakingly said it time and time again. All of us are helpless and hopeless. All of us are helpless and hopeless. And all of us are born unwilling to come to Christ, and even if we were willing, unable. There is none who seek, no, not one. All have turned aside. We are all helpless. We are all hopeless. And we are unwilling to come and we are unable to come. Paul sums it up this way. We were dead in our sins. Our sins penetrated and polluted us in all that we were and are. Apart from Christ. Is it also true though. That anyone who is truly in Christ. Anyone who is in Christ. And saved by Christ. All of God's elect. Without exception will be saved. Well according to Jesus it is. Because Jesus said father. All whom you've given me. I lose not one. But I will raise them up. On the last day. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who will lay a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who even now intercedes for us. And nothing, neither death nor life, any created thing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So my answer to those two questions is, is it true that without exception, every human being is born a sinner, 
sins is under God's judgment and headed to eternal condemnation? Answer, yes. Is it true that every that all of God's elect, without exception, will be saved by grace to life from death in Christ? And the answer is yes. Now two more questions. Why is that true? And how is that true? Why is that true? And how is that true? Answer. And this, oh my goodness, this. We're talking seven day conference on this. And I got about seven to ten minutes. Two divine acts. Now again, remember pastor said, gird up the loins of your mind. Jump in. Just, just this Sunday, just this Sunday, jump in with me, okay? Two divine acts. One, why is it true that everyone born is born a sinner, dead, sins, and under the judgment of God? And why is it that none of those of God's elect can ever be lost, but will enjoy the feast of eternity with Christ. Why is that true? Why? Answer, federalism. Federalism. Now, that's a term that's a theological term. Federalism. Federal theology. You're already familiar with it. You're already familiar with it because the impact of Christianity on our culture, not that we have a perfect culture by any means, but the impact caused people impacted with the Christian understanding of a world and life. You said, I know how we ought to govern through an election and have a representative and the representative represents the people that elect him. So when he votes, they vote. So by an electoral process, we're going to elect people who will then be uh, in a constitutional office to vote for us. And when they vote, we voted with them. We, this federalism was so important to understand that th- there was something called the Federalist Papers. And it was drawn right out of this theological concept. The one for the many. And when the one acts, the many act. Now, about three weeks ago, I tried to lay this out a little bit for you by showing you some examples in the Bible as well as your own experience in civics. And I tried to show you from like Melchizedek. Melchizedek's mentioned three times in your Bible. Genesis 14 where he entertains Abraham, who is coming back from his victory to liberate Lot, Lot, and they stop off at a place called Salim, Salem. That was the pre-Canaanite tribal city, later to become Jerusalem. And the king is King Melchizedek, the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And this king meets Abraham, and Abraham meets him. 
And Abraham worships. And Abraham surrenders. And Abraham tithes. Man, the concept of faithful tithing is so rich in the Scripture. He worships. He adores. He kneels. He bows. He tithes to Melchizedek. Now, the writer of Hebrews says, man, is this important. You don't believe how important this is. Because Jesus is the Messiah. Amen? And that means he is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the final prophet and the prophet over all prophets. He is the king of kings and comes from the tribe of Judah. He is also the priest, the great high priest. But here's a problem. The high priest comes from the tribe of Levi and Jesus, mother and father, come from the tribe of Judah. How can he possibly be our great high priest? Well, the Bible tells us in Psalm 110 that the Messiah comes in the order of Melchizedek. The same guy back in Genesis 14, which I believe was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. You know, this is really interesting for me. When I go to Israel, almost I always try to plan to do something new. This was my 18th trip, and I was learning the Bible and the land of the Bible, and I was able to plan to do a couple of things new, and um, then some unplanned things new. While I was there, I found out that they have just found. You see, you got, you got Jerusalem underneath it, the Jebusite city of David that he conquered underneath that, Salem, Salim. And they've got, they're down to Salim. And guess what they've just found? The temple that dates to the time of Abraham and Melchizedek. It's probably where Abraham entered into a communion meal, bread and wine with Melchizedek and worshiped and tithed and knelt that very place that they've discovered. And it's there in that place that something else happens. Hebrews 7 tells us when Abraham, when Abraham bowed, Isaac in his loins, not yet born, but Isaac in his loins bowed. And Jacob, who would come from Isaac, bowed. And the sons of Jacob bowed, which included who? Levi. So when Abraham bowed, Isaac bowed, Jacob bowed, Levi bowed. And when Levi bowed, it recognized the supremacy of the priestly order of Melchizedek, a better priesthood for a better covenant. That's federal theology, the one for the many. Or the time that, the time that David stepped up and won the battle for Israel. And the Bible tells us that the Israelite soldiers went home and said, God has given us a great victory. Really? I think it was a little shepherd boy that went out there and did that. But when David won, they won. The one for the many. Can I give you another illustration from your from your history, my history here in the United States. Some of you, this is ancient history. It's footnoted. I'm a footnote. I saw this happen. On a grainy television, I saw a guy named Neil Armstrong descend from a capsule on the lunar surface, on the moon surface. And when he was there, he got down. And this is what he said. 
One small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. He put himself representing all of humanity. For himself, it was a small step down the ladder. But for mankind, when he stepped, it was a giant leap for all of us. And then he went over and he planted a flag. And when he planted the flag, what he's saying is, when he, the appointed representative of the United States of America, when he landed and when he set foot, we set foot on the moon. That's federalism. So how do you and I get saved? And how did we get lost? The one for the many. Now let me show you. Walk with me through Romans 5. Just walk with me very quickly through it. Look at Romans 5. Go down to verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who would that be? Adam. And death, what comes to all, what comes now? Death through sin. And death spread to who? All men without exception. Because all do what? All sin. Now watch. All die, all sin, because all come from Adam. And when he sinned, we sinned. And when we're born, we have a sin nature. And when we have a sin nature, we actually sin. From the original sin comes actual sin. And the actual sin brings forth death. Because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, what is he saying? Well, hold it. Wait just a minute. Sin is the transgression of God's law. Now, Adam had God's law and he transgressed it, but we don't get God's law until Moses. How come everybody in that is counted a sinner? Because every man is not his own Adam. We all have sinned, whether we had the law or not. We all sinned in Adam. And when Adam sinned, we sinned. He was our federal head, and what he did, we did. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type. Uh Uh-oh, we got another federal head coming. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses through brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that 
that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So look, you got Adam. He sinned. And therefore, when he sinned, we sin. So we are born sinners and we sin. And the wages of sin is death. But here's a second Adam. And this Adam has accomplished righteousness. And this Adam has taken the sins of his people who brought the sin of the first Adam. And what he brings is not sin, but grace. And not death, but life. That's what the second Adam brings. And so what you have are these two Adams, these two federal heads. And when Adam acted, then all of his all of his progeny acted and sinned and were born and then sin and then die. They go from their original sin in Adam to actual sin. Let me uh, try to illustrate this for you just a little bit. Well, no, let me finish this first. Go to the next verse. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In other words, Adam and his all are under the curse of sin. Christ and his all are under the blessing of life. The one for the all, the one for the many. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What does law do? It identifies. You don't need the law for the sin. The sin came from Adam. But we, the, but the law does point out the sin, magnify the sin, and magnify the dominion of sin that is over us. Because the law, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But let me go to a p- couple of parallel texts, and if you will, hang with me, and we'll do this very quickly. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Would you go there to your right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when you get there, go down to verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I uh, go down to verse, uh, yeah, 20. But in fact, Christ, who died for our sins, has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's a term referring to the death of the elect. For as by a man came death, that's Adam... By a man comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, what? All die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You see what he's saying? Adam and all of his seed are born sinners from his sin. They sinned in Adam and with Adam and are born sinners and actually sin and die. Christ, all of Christ are in Christ and by his grace live. The one to the many. Now watch, 
But pastor, wait, it says all in Adam die, all in Christ are made alive. Doesn't that mean universal salvation? No, 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 no. Look a little closer. Look a little closer. You got two Adams and you got two alls. You got Adam one and his all is humanity. Adam two and his all are told, it says it in the text, are those who belong to him. Who belong to Jesus? All that the Father gives me, the elect of God, belong to him. And none of them shall be lost. To Adams, to alls. Inevitably, infallibly, all of humanity are born sinners and under the reign of sin and death. And all who are born again in Christ, the elect of God, are now, by God's grace, under the reign of grace and life. How does that happen? One more word. Imputation. It's an accounting term. Imputation. It is an accounting term. This is how it's done. Our sins were placed on Christ. So Adam's sin was the original sin and brought our sin nature from which we sin. It's not we sin and get a sin nature. It's we got a sin nature from original sin and thus we sin and thus we die. And in Adam, that is what happens through imputation. It's, a, it's an accounting term. It means to either uh, assign. It may, basically means to reckon to or assign to. So here's what happens. Our curses are placed on Christ. His righteousness and blessing is placed on us. Imputation. Adam's original sin becomes our sin nature and our sins that we embrace. Christ, with that, with one sin came the many sinners. But with the one act of righteousness and the one who dies for all the sins of all of his people, now comes grace that is greater than our sin. Original sin. Now listen to me carefully. Original sin is not identifying the first sin. Original sin is identifying the origin of all sin. Let me say it again. Original sin is not looking back at the fruit of the tree, the first sin. Original sin is saying in that sin is the origin of all sin. We're born sinners. When Adam sinned, we sinned. We're born with a sin nature, and then we sin, and we're under death. Then our sins are imputed to Christ. And his righteousness. Can I do it this way? Look, here is my life. What, what am I? I'm born into this world. What am I as a son of Adam? What am I? I'm a what? You can say it. I won't take offense. I'm a sinner. There's a record of my life. Sin. Here is the record of Jesus' life. In fact, would you take a look at 2 Corinthians 5.21? Here's imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, no sin, to be sin on our behalf. In other words, here's Jesus on the cross. My sin he bore in his body and the unmixed wrath of God for all of my sins, your sins, all the sins of all of his people for all of eternity 
fell upon him. And he said, Telestai, it's finished. It's paid for. I paid for it. I've drank the cup of judgment for you. That you might be forgiven. Our sins were imputed to him. But that's not where it stops. Because heaven's not for the forgiven. Heaven is for the righteous. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's my sin record. It goes to Jesus. He pays for it. Imputation. But there's another imputation. His righteousness comes to me. And every time God sees his elect, he sees them in the robes of the perfect righteousness of Christ. We've been saved by the power of God and the righteousness of God. Through our Adam, Christ, who took our sins and gave us his righteousness. Therefore, none can be lost. Why? The same God who says the soul that sinneth must surely die does not demand two payments for the same sin. Jesus paid it all. So, Father, all of mine, all whom you've given me, I lose not one, but will raise them up on the last day. So now I'll close in prayer with your takeaway. All those questions give me a third question. How come? I know why federalism, one for the many. I know how imputation. Last question, how come? Because God had a love for us, a love that was unsought, a love that was unmerited, a love that was undeserved. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. A love that was unsought, a love that was unmerited, a love that was um, a love that was um, undeserved, and a love that was unstoppable. We, his people, he emancipated his people. Please listen. I've chosen my prepositions carefully. He emancipated his people by the grace of God, through the Son of God, for the glory of God, in the love of God, to the praise of God forever. In Adam, I'm a sinner helpless. I'm a sinner hopeless. I am a sinner helpless in Adam. In Christ, I've got the power of God. In Adam, I'm hopeless. In Christ, I have the righteousness of God. In Adam, I'm unwilling. In Christ, I am seeking. In Adam, I'm unable. In Christ, I've been born again. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons I did not want to come to... I, I believed in Jesus. I believe Jesus lived and died for sinners. I believed in Christianity. I just said no. And I tried to suppress it. Why? Not because I didn't believe it wasn't true. Because I didn't want it. And the reason... Here, let me quote me. 
Here's me. I don't want to become a Christian. I don't want to become a Christian because I want to be free to do what I want to do. What I didn't know is I wasn't free. I was a slave under the dominion and reign of sin and death and darkness. I also didn't know that when you became a Christian, not only were you set free from the dominion of sin and the reign of sin, but God changed your wanter. Now you want him. Now you want what matters for eternity. Now what you ought to want, you should want. I wasn't free. I was enslaved and under the dominion of sin. And when you come to Christ, you're not only set free from the reign of sin, you are now given a new dominion of grace and he changes all that you want and he starts in the trajectory of life of growing you in his grace. He, let me put it this way. He breaks the power of cancel sin. He sets the prisoner free. That's what he does. That's what Christ does. He doesn't barely save us. Man, did you read that? I tried to emphasize. I know I didn't do a good job. Did you read the five times? How much more? How much more? How much more? Abounding, abundant, abounding. Did you read that? Jesus doesn't barely save us. Jesus doesn't begrudgingly save us. Jesus extravagantly, lavishly saves us and his grace is greater than sin. And when grace, his grace meets my sin, no contest, his grace is greater. He takes away the penalty. He breaks the power. Yes, I still have remaining sin, but no longer is sin reigning. That's what he does in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Much more, abounding, abundantly, not only what glorious truths of what he has done. The gospel is not a message of a begrudging divine benefactor. The, The gospel is a message of abundant, extravagant, lavish grace from a beautiful, loving Savior. I remember. I remember the moment that I... Gave my life to Christ in a hallway on my knees, got up, left the hallway, and then came back and said, you know, God, now that I've made this commitment to you, if there's anything you want me to do, would you just kind of let me know? I'll never forget saying that. What I did not know is not simply what I could do for him but what his grace was going to do to me and in me and through me. And praise God is continuing to do in me and through me and to me and can for you. Come from the reign of sin and darkness and its dominion and death to Christ. Life evermore. What an abundant grace. He gives you spiritual gifts. He's got a ministry for every one of you. He gives you resources to use for him. He lets you bring Jesus to people. You bring people to hear Jesus. Would you please bring them and at least give me a shot at them? 
And then you mop up what I do wrong. What a great privilege we have. What an abundant, abounding grace is ours. Greater than our sin and glorious. Let's pray. Father, I I just pray that you would take this uh, effort to unfold this absolutely astonishing, astounding text of the redeeming work of Christ who has taken us from death unto life and now sends us with the message of life to death and darkness in this world with humility, confidence, courage, boldness, and, and kindness and mercy. Holy Spirit, do your work in us and through us. If there's anyone, Father, here today that hasn't come to Jesus, may they leave here not under the reign of sin and Adam, but Christ and grace. I plead with you for that. In fact, if you want to pray with someone, just come up here to the front. There will be those that can pray with you and for you. And what a glorious privilege is ours. God, I give you praise and thanksgiving to God be the glory. In Christ, great things he's done. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.